1: Good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the latest installation of uh, New Books Network in African Studies. I'm Susan Thompson, your host here at Colgate University. Today I am joined by Kara Moskowitz. She's Assistant Professor of African History at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. She's written a terrific book titled Seeing Like a Citizen, Decolonization, Development, and the Making of Kenya, 1945 to 1980." Her book was published in 2019 by Ohio University Press. Kara's book is rigorously researched and beautifully written. She draws on both archival and life history methods to center rural Kenyans living or who have lived in the Rift Valley Highlands of Western Kenya as agents of both development and decolonization. Both of these concepts, development and decolonization, are central to Kara's argument. She argues state-led processes of development have defined post-colonial citizenship in Kenya. In turn, this has dictated access to land and other state-controlled resources. It's a fascinating book that raises important questions about the post-colonial state as an object of international development initiatives the post-colonial state as part of the developmental logic of the Kenyan state, and of course the ways in which rural Kenyans sought to manage quote-unquote development to their advantage by imploring local officials to advocate on their behalf. In examining state-led processes from the bottom up, Kara's work illustrates the need to study the late colonial and early colonial periods as a single period of analytical transition as well as the importance of learning from those subject-to-state-led development initiatives. Tara, I'm delighted to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I wanted to jump right in because your book uh, really blew me away, and I I tried to read broadly, and your book struck me as special because it really uh, was rooted in archival work but also oral history, of course, doing archives in a, a British colonial state is um, a thing. So before we turn to that, I wanted to ask you a few questions about yourself, to situate yourself as an instrument of knowledge for our listeners. So, If, if you don't mind, um, what brought you to the topic? Um, where did you mm-hmm. go to school? Why did you go to school there? Who have you worked with?
0: Sure. Um, so I grew up in Ohio in a small college town. and. Um, I am the child of political scientists, oh, wow. so I obviously did not become a political scientist. But I'm interested in political history. Uh, I went to college at Grinnell College in Iowa, and then I went to graduate school at Emory University. Um, but during undergraduate, I studied abroad in Ghana, and at that time, I was very interested in possibly, you know, becoming a development practitioner and My experiences there made me more critical of development as um, a sector, Um, and then after I graduated from college, I lived in Lesotho for a year um, and started thinking really critically about land politics, especially thinking about South Africa and Zimbabwe, Um, and both of those things kind of solidified in my mind that I, I didn't want to work in development, but I was really interested in studying it and especially studying the intersections of the history of development and with regard to agricultural development and particularly with regard to land settlement in former settler colonies. Um, so, And that, that's how I came to the topic over many years, uh, but um, Kenya for me seemed an interesting, even though I, I it wasn't... Where these ideas grew from, it was an interesting case study to to look at um because there's been so much research on land settlement that a lot of it was done in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, and there hadn't been as much of a kind of reinterpretation from historians about those questions and also an examination of the ways in which those programs were deeply intertwined with not only development but with decolonization and the creation of early post-colonial statehood but also early post-colonial political culture
1: So what do you think then is the role of historians in studying um a case like Kenya as you noted you know Kenya's fairly well known but we know mm-hmm. a lot quote unquote since the 70s and 80s what is the role of history um to your mind
0: Well, I think one of the kind of critiques I make of the political science literature from the 70s and 80s, which I think if you return to it, it's still fantastic, but it was so um, deeply entrenched in questions about rural class differentiation and dependency theory um, that they kind of excluded a whole series of other questions. Like there's not a great deal on this kind of way ways in which people created community or the social impacts of these programs or how rural people kind of understood the programs and imagined themselves um, as new citizens and related those relationships of development and land settlement to um, being new citizens or to being part of a nation or to nation building. So none of those questions have been really kind of worked on, and if they have been, it's been mostly focused on central Kenya, um, where a lot of the Kenyan scholarship has focused and obviously was still a site of land settlement, but um, tells a particular story. So I wanted to try to tell what I think is a more well-rounded story that still centers on questions of class and inequality, certainly, but also looks at questions of gender and local politics um, and Ethnic differentiation um, so the hope was to tell a kind of more complicated story
1: I think uh, that's a great answer to my mind because your book really shines in decentering central Kenya for lack of a better phrase, and um that's my next question. How did you choose your field site quote unquote mm-hmm. and maybe say a word for some of our listeners? How do historians think about field work yeah um.
0: So, I forgot to answer in your initial question oh, yeah. about some of my, my mentors. Um, but I, I worked at Emory with, uh, Clifton Crace, who is a specialist on South Africa. Um, but one of my other dissertation advisors was Peter Little, who is an anthropologist, but initially did most of his work in Kenya. And with, through conversations with him, he had suggested you know, the Western Rift Valley has really been understudied. Um, there's just not been much work on it. Um, so I, when I went to the archives as a graduate student, I, I started looking at, um, the district that I ultimately ended up working on called Wasan Gishu. Um, and he had guided me there, so that helped, but I, Part of the reason that I thought it was a useful case study had to do with also historiographical questions. Um, one is that so much of the scholarship has focused on Central Kenya, and if you're unfamiliar, that is the region closest to Nairobi. It's where the Kikuyu, the largest ethnic group, live, and so it's and it's also where. The Mau rebellion kind of centered. So it, there's a disproportionate focus on this region to the detriment of lots of other regions of Kenya. Um, but Wasangishu offered a nice contrast because it was not only a multi ethnic region, so that it, there wasn't just one singular ethnic group. And then I could move away from these histories that just, um, not that they're bad. I think they've been very, very important and ethnicity is very significant in Kenya, but histories that focus on just the making of a single ethnic group. I wanted to move away from that and focus on something that moves beyond just the question of the ethnos. And so, Wasengishu offered a nice case study in that way because it is such a multi-ethnic region. And then the other interesting aspect about it is that, though it was this site of really great developmental intervention, um, especially as um, a region that had fertile agricultural land, and had been part of what was called the White Highlands, it was also very removed from Nairobi. So it was at once kind of central to the Kenyan economy, but also a kind of borderlands region and a little bit remote. It's, It's distant from the capital. So that offered this kind of different type of insight into what Kenyan experiences of state intervention might look like. And I think in a lot of places that are more removed from the capital and aren't quite as central to the Kenyan economy, there was a lot of this kind of inconsistency with state intervention. Um, and so that it, it worked nicely in that way in helping me to tell um, not a less conventional, but a different history of of Kenya.
1: I think that's also an area where your book shines. It really draws out the transnational ties that come from this remote mm-hmm. region. So we may think of remote regions as sort of being Peripheral, to use the language of dependency theory, but in fact, they're quite central. And the people who live there, as your book clearly shows, have lively, thoughtful, and sometimes forceful interactions with the people responsible for their development. And that's another thing I thought was so interesting about your book is that is development for economic gain or is it for something else? And that's um, one of the questions that for me threaded through your book in the in in a profound way because it shows us that agents actually have agency they're not subjects they're actors and that was an important part um of the book for me so as we transition to speaking about the book can you summarize for us your overall argument you know it's a it's um, a rich book a lot of phot- photography that was i thought really helpful to the reader good mm-hmm. use of maps um clear your one thing i really liked and this is just me perhaps nerding out of my own sort of shortcomings but your each chapter was really tight i it's it's a long book but it's a tight book <clears throat> if you know what i mean like you had a lot of chapters but each one did yeah uh, an incredible job When i think about teaching this book i would teach it to my seniors who were writing their own theses for the first time like here's how an author puts in command the evidence that she or he has gathered So, the reader was Mm -hmm. never lost about this section or that section. The book was um, quite beautifully woven around land, around agriculture, um, around development, around international actors, around Kenyan elites, Kenyan non elites, and lots of people in their orbit. So, there was this network um, of people that emerged very clearly in the course of reading the book. So, with that in mind, how how would you summarize your argument for listeners? It's always interesting Mm -hmm. to have a reader. Um, hear from the author about what they think they did.
0: Sure. Um, well, there are a few arguments, but one is that, and I, other scholars have made this argument, that decolonization and development were not only co-constitutive but co-terminus, and that you can't really think about one without the other. And they, they both of these historical processes are occurring at the same time, and they deeply impacted one another. Um, and the second is that because there were so many external actors and national actors trying to influence these programs, um, it kind of viewed the sorts of power dynamics that we've previously considered as kind of accepted that the previous thinking has been that you know, in the 1960s, high modernization theory deeply shaped development, and that basically all development money ran through states and that states had this kind of top-down way of focusing on questions of like industrialization and urbanization. But the Kenyan case shows that actually there are a whole series of other actors involved, including rural Kenyans, but also community leaders, churches, NGOs, ethnic communities, um, transnational institutions, the Kenyan state, of course. And what this In looking at these processes in a more well-rounded manner, it exposes constraints on state power and reveals instead, and reveals also that average people were able to kind of negotiate and fashion citizenship, um, through their interactions with this multi-tiered set of actors and that citizenship isn't exclusively about national citizenship or Kenyan citizenship, but it's individuals and communities fashioning relationships with other bodies, whether that's the nation state, the Mm -hmm. ethnic community, a global form of citizenship, um, thinking about what they are obligated to do, what rights they get in return, what is the balance of this question of rights and duties. And so I'm trying to raise questions about the state as this all-powerful institution, which collects all of the money of Foreign aid and military aid at this moment, and instead think about a much richer and more complicated web of institutions and people who actually participated in these processes. Um, and one of the outcomes of this is not only that people had these multi-tiered and plural citizenships, but also that this the negotiability of these types of um, programs created a great deal of inequality. So I'm trying to balance thinking about kind of politics with also thinking about the material realities of these programs.
1: I think that's why um, your book is so well titled. So the book is Seeing Like a Citizen. It's clearly a riff on um, James Scott seeing like a state. and Of course, you don't hide away Mm -hmm. from that um, in the book. How can you? Uh, Mm -hmm. But you also, I think, do a really interesting and smart, critique of the top-down high modernist approach that is central to Scott's argument arguing of mm-hmm. course that scholars political scientists as you noted earlier have generally overlooked the agency and action of um, development subjects in this case um, rural Kenyans living in the west what what um what led you to the title of the book and what in your opinion does Scott miss like what does your work bring to Scott's framework that is used in so many fields?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, firstly, I I find Scott's work actually very helpful as, you know, it's a framework. It's a theory that helps us to think about how a state might function. But with any theory, there are always exceptions or problems or areas that it doesn't cover. Mm-hmm. And like so much of the scholarship on development, it's very state-centric. It focuses a lot on questions of planning and not on actual execution. So what does it actually look like when these programs get planned? And and his idea is that, you know, states are these top-down institutions that are trying to make citizens or the people that they rule over legible, and that way they can manipulate them more easily. But what I found when I spoke to people is that they wanted to make themselves legible to the state because the state was a provider of some state resources. So in certain moments, Kenyan wa- Kenyans wanted the state to be able to see them because they wanted to be able to make claims for land or health care, education or roads. Um, so basically, if you if you take the bottom up perspective, these questions look quite different. And citizens are saying something quite different from what we might imagine them to say. And And even if, you know, the Kenyan state could be quite violent, it also was a provider of resources. So we have to hold these things kind of together, even if they are somewhat irreconcilable, that citizens might experience state intervention as both a negative and positive thing. And so in certain circumstances, they will try work with the
1: state or make themselves legible to the state. I thought that was one thing that was so interesting, this question of legibility, because, you know, the Kenyans in your sample, quote-unquote, had interesting ways of, A, revealing themselves to the state, making themselves legible, and also trying, sometimes failing, sometimes succeeding, depending on your measure of success, I guess, um, in getting what they needed from the state. So it was an interesting transition and that's my next question what what does this bottom-up listening to rural kenyans reading the archives i assume you read the archives um looking for rural kenyans maybe you can talk about how you read the archives mm-hmm. um what does it actually teach us about this development decolonization dialectic that i think is at the center of your work hmm
0: yeah, I mean I think we've had in in recent years there's been a lot of focus on both development, histories of development and and decolonization and that scholarship continues to get, you know, more nuanced and complicated um moving on from some of the really important works in this field that offered us kind of a framework but you know, it's always a little bit messier than we initially thought. Um and in the archives You know, at least for development scholars, I think so much of the focus has been on development plans. Um, And these are plans are easy to access because they tend to be published. Sometimes you can even access them online. You don't even have to go to an archive. Um, And they also might be public before other archival documents. So this is another reason why history and historians are really important for reassessing these processes, because some archival documents or many archival documents only become available 25, 30, 50 years after the fact. So so political scientists or whoever can't do the research right after these programs are implemented just because or they can do the research, but they're limited, at least with the types of documents that they can work with. And the problem with looking at development plans or the, not the problem, but the way in which it kind of narrows your analytical field is that then many scholars have focused on questions of discourse and what types of discourse emerges from these plans. Um, But that tells us very little about how it was experienced or reconfigured or negotiated on the ground. Um, by the people who are the quote-unquote targets of these development plans. And sometimes development plans don't actually even get implemented, and thus it doesn't tell us a great deal about historically what happened. Um, So I tried to – development plans are useful, but I also tried to look for what I see as more nuanced archival sources. Correspondence amongst bureaucrats is really helpful, especially really local bureaucrats. Um, because they are interacting with people on the ground and they are the ones who are responsible for implementing development plans. So they, they can talk a lot about the kind of difficulties and challenges of implementing these programs and also about the experiences they're having with different communities. Of course, there's still a kind of mediated, um, portrayal of, of how local people actually experience things. Um, So another archival source that was really useful to me is petitions. Um, Kenyans, I I don't know if this is the same elsewhere because I haven't done as much archival research in other settings, but Kenyans were, you know, active petitioners of their local officials, their national officials. They wrote a lot of petitions. I read a lot of petitions. Um, Those are also problematic sources because they tend to take on a sort of genre and a lot of petitions look quite similar to one another. A lot of Kenyans were not literate, so they were working with someone who wrote the petition on behalf of them. Um, so it was also a problematic source, but it, I think it tells you the types of claims people believed they could make, and that when they used, especially for land petitions, for example, people often made claims to impoverishment, saying, like, I'm impoverished, thus I'm deserving of land. And so this gives you a sense of, how people kind of made sense of their lives and what types of resources the state should provide for them as a result of them being poor. Um, Whereas on the other hand, the state actually saw poverty as not endowing you at all with a right to citizenship. You actually needed, you know, capital and to be able to make a down payment and to be able to pay back loans because land was not for free. So in some ways it tells you about kind of conflicting ideas about, rights and um, restitution in the post-colonial era. Um, otherwise, yeah, a lot of government correspondence. Um, I I read a lot of uh basically district monthly reports, annual reports, provincial monthly reports, and annual reports, um, anything to give me a more local sense of what was going on on the ground. And then I tried to... Kind of double check that, or, or triangulate yeah. that with oral histories to get a sense of how people actually remembered those histories themselves, and whether their perspectives matched up with or diverged from the official perspective.
1: I mean, so much has been said. I have many questions. Um, one of them, I think. <laughs> well, I think one thing I really admire about what you've said, as you know, as someone who also works in archives, is that a lot of these things are aspirational. And you need to mm-hmm. compare the reality with the aspiration, which is probably why your book is so nuanced and so lovely, because you are able to mediate the archival aspiration with the lived experiences of those you were able to um, interview. So how, how did you find your um, participants? Maybe you don't know, you think of them as respondents. I don't know how you think of them. Um, but how, how did you do that work of comparing um, archival data with people's actual experiences the pictures you have are so i just think they're so beautiful because you can see a life lived in every face and um there's just something really special about the photography that you were able to include in the book because of course as we both know it's sometimes hard to get images into your academic
0: book yeah well i i will admit my partner is a photographer i saw that yeah good catch so he came he came on one of um, my research trips and, and took some portraits of um, the people that I interviewed most frequently. Um, and I thought that was important because I wanted, I, I didn't want the people that I worked with to come off as kind of faceless. And uh, I wanted them to be thought of as individuals and, and they, a lot of them decided how they wanted to be pictured. Um, <laughs> So you can see in, in some of the portraits that, um, there's a woman sitting in her kitchen rile serum and, um, her husband is sitting next to a cow because that was like his pride and joy. And so he wanted to be pictured in that way. And, um, to me, it was, yeah, a way of kind of giving them a sense of individuality and allowing them to be pictured as they, they wanted to be pictured. Um, I think another thing, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Another no, th- I, I, I lost <laughs> track of um my my thoughts, so no, you go it. ahead.
1: <laughs> I, I think one thing that also emerges from your work is something that perhaps we don't see in the mainstream, for lack of a better phrase, perhaps political science literature, is that Kenya's corrupt, and there's always these mm. high levels of corruption. You know, it surpassed Nigerian corruption and these negative, wholly negative discourses about corruption. And one thing that emerges in the interaction between your participants and the local officials mediated through the archival material is that a lot of local officials are actually trying their best in a system that isn't designed for them to succeed. And the bigger question and the bigger critique that I think you do quite well is like, this is kind of a problem of elites, but it's also a bigger problem of how the development enterprise actually works. And you have this um, sort of sub argument that was it intended for economic development or was it intended to sort of control, you know, for lack of a better word, right. um, local people? And this is um, my next question. Like one thing I loved about the pictures, you see them with priorethrum, you see them with their cattle, you know, they're, they're Kenyans mm-hmm. being Kenyans, they're people being people, they're not even Kenyans being mm-hmm. Kenyans. How um, do you think for them through your work? we can understand land as both an economic commodity, but also an emotional commodity for um, Mm -hmm. the Kenyans you interviewed?
0: Yeah, um, it it is definitely both. And this is a sort of ongoing argument that scholars of Kenya at least have made with regard to land and, and why it has been so central to politics, you know, for pretty much the entire 20th century and, and even into the present, um, is that it, it is this really important material and economic resource, because at least in the 1960s, Kenya's economy has shifted a little bit more now in other directions. But in the 1960s, the economy revolved around agricultural exports, and having access to the Kenyan highlands in particular, the fertile land around the Rift Valley that produces Exports like coffee, tea, pyrethrum um, was really central to one's ability to to live a good life and and to, to make a good living um, because there weren't that many other industries at the time. Um, but at the same time, there are all these kind of emotional and social connections to land um, in in amongst the Nandi, the ethnic groups that I primarily focus on, but amongst all ethnic groups. And so the ways in which they frame their claims to land have a lot to do with these emotional attachments. So for the Nandi, for example, it had a lot to do with the land that they lost at colonial conquest and the injustices of colonial conquest and the memories of um fighting against colonial conquest and being displaced in the early 20th century. And, and this kind of language of restitution and of regaining access to that land that they had once inhabited um, was so central to identity and to people's desires for what they saw as post-colonial justice. Um, and so it takes on this different framing is not just, we want to improve our economic well-being by gaining access to land, but also this is our land. We have rights to this land and no one else does. And that's something that continually um, undercut more expansive kind of political ideas because it's in some ways a very insular framework for an ethnic group. And it it made it very difficult to kind of maintain alliances um, politically. And it also meant that there was lots of kind of contestation within groups that were seen to be kind of broadly speaking on the same, from within the same political party. Um, and other ethnic groups within Kenya also kind of thought about land with similar social and emotional attachments based on different histories or different kind of moral economies in terms of the ways in which one gains prestige and honor with their community. A lot of it centers on owning a piece of land or living on a piece of land and prospering through farming. Um, So it was something that certainly has both economic and, and social implications.
1: It's such an interesting framing too for those of us who, you know, visit Kenya, have family in Kenya, work in Kenya, whatever framework the listener might have is that, you know, elites in Nairobi speak of going up country and going up country is mm. going to your shamba, going to your land. I think your um, your work is a really important corrective to that sort of framing the role of land um, in in the Kenyan psyche, for lack of a better phrase. But you also mentioned something in your response about, Kenya's um, colonial origins and the fact that it was, you know, a white settler society and the conflicts that led us to the creation of an independent Kenya, quote unquote. And this, of course, to my mind anyway, is really truly rooted in land politics and who controls um, access to land. And I, I myself, you may disagree. I think of ethnicity as as, um, a colonial construct, obviously, What is the role of ethnicity? I think your work is interesting in that, like, ethnicity is a factor, but you need to think about gender and race and income and class and education. So what is the role of ethnicity in moving Kenya from, you know, a settler society to late, you know, late colonization into the early transition period that you frame as a single political, I think rightly frame as a single social, political and um, economic transition?
0: Yeah. um, So I think the way to start in terms of thinking about it is through the lens of land and that the land issue and land resettlement um, so skewed the ways in which politics worked in the late colonial and early post-colonial era that it created these shaky political alliances that had little – had not much to do with actual political ideologies and had more to do with questions about how state resources would be distributed. So it kind of skewed um, the political landscape of decolonizing Kenya, um, which is how you get initially um, a canoe party, which has, you know, a bunch of socialists and then a bunch of like vehement capitalists who have uh, Allied together basically as a way of kind of putting together their demographic strengths and also their belief in having a strongly centralized government. But on most issues, they really didn't disagree with one or didn't agree with one another politically. Um, And at the same time, you have the opposition party whose sole Tattoo party, whose sole kind of focus was on. Making sure the government was decentralized and that regions would basically distribute land. So their, um, constituents, usually composed of ethnic communities, would have greater ability to gain access to land. So this really skewed the kind of nature of politics. And I think, you know, one of the, I don't know if it we, the disappointments or the, you know, I guess it's a disappointment of, of, post-colonial politics in Kenya is that ethnicity has always um, overshadowed questions like class and gender. And even though these are huge and important questions, there hasn't been a great deal of thinking about Inequality, for example, I mean, there has been that thinking, but that's not the overriding framework that deeply shapes politics. So there isn't a a great deal of political discourse on inequality or all the people who talked about questions of inequality and class end up getting sidelined in the post-colonial era. And then ethnicity continued to kind of dominate politics and ethnic coalitions really shaped the ways in which politics functioned. so yeah, the interconnections between ethnicity and land have been really central, but I think hopefully one of the things that my book shows is that land settlement programs were framed through class and that, that much, that's why you see much of the land transferred to elite Kenyans who'd already accumulated resources during colonial rule, but also But even for the land programs targeted at the quote-unquote rural poor, the requirement that you have to be able to put in a down payment also was a class differentiator and also cemented um, the class boundaries that existed because the people who couldn't afford the down payment were then further dispossessed because they also couldn't purchase land at independence, which was something that was very helpful um, for those who were able to acquire it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. And then, yeah. Go
0: ahead. Sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Similarly, similarly, women were obviously very much excluded from land ownership. And oftentimes, their only way of accessing land was through their husbands or their brothers or other male family members. And this was something that was addressed in a way within policy, but not addressed in the implementation of the program. And so, even when women, as single women, were allowed to buy land, it was very. infrequent that this occurred because there are all of these sorts of institutional and bureaucratic barriers that remained in place.
1: it's probably the case too that those women just to pick up on the last thing you said suffered at the local level um, community mm-hmm. members may have you know harmed them or um, whatever the case might be um, but your your answer is really compelling and it makes me circle back to this concept of development, what is it? And I think one thing your book shows is that it's rather impossible without some sense of like structural realities. And you can't really understand pre-colonial, post-colonial Kenya as temporal, analytical periods, because the structure remains throughout. And that's, I think, mm-hmm. one the disappointment. Is the disappointment in your mind that we still have some form of a settler state in Kenya? Or am I being too dramatic here?
0: Um yeah I I mean I think the question about what is development is is something that that was in a way not really addressed and one of the things that's kind of complicated or confusing about post-colonial Kenya is there's a lot of discourse from the government that is directly contradicted by the actual policy of the government so Kenya had a um published a 1965 mandate on, quote-unquote, African socialism. Kenya was obviously not a socialist state, um, and they were putting out kind of similar pieces of um, writing or speeches that suggested that, you know, they were tackling questions of inequality and that all Kenyans would be cared for in the post-colonial era, Um But in reality, there wasn't a kind of institutional or structural, um, emphasis on addressing questions of inequality and that, you know, and political scientists showed this a long time ago, but a, a lot of, um, land transfer and other resource transfers that occurred at independence basically continued to cement class inequalities. But it was just that, you know, the primary owners of Kenyan resources became African elites rather than white settlers. Um, And the fact that this has remained so unaddressed within post-colonial Kenya, I think, is one of the the great disappointments um, of, you know, Kenya's independent period. Um, and whether development was ever supposed to, you know, contribute to lessening inequality, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the the kind of bottom up approach that I take is that you get a sense of of what rural Kenyans thought development meant and and how they conceptualized it. And obviously, there were a range of ways in which people conceptualized development, and even amongst. State actors, there was a great deal of disagreement, and of course, between them and transnational actors and all sorts of other development actors, there were lots of conceptualizations that just couldn't be reconciled in practice, but um for rural Kenyans, a lot of it had to do with, some of it had to do with accessing land. Some of it had to do with being able to educate their kids or have a local clinic in their community. Um But it wasn't wasn't often framed in the language directly in the language of equality, though there was this kind of language of, you know, wealthy Kenyans or elite Kenyans have so much when other people have nothing at all. And that seems unjust to us. Um, But there wasn't, I think, a discourse of saying like everyone should be exactly equal. There was always this discourse that you have to work hard in order to access the resources of the state. Um, but there was a, a criticism of the existence of Kenyans, for example, who were hungry or completely impoverished or couldn't send their kids to school. Like those were expectations that people did hold uh, for the post colonial era.
1: And you see, I think, quite clearly in your work, the distinction between development and the promise of citizenship. So there's discipline. You may be a citizen, but that doesn't give you immediate um, title or, or access, I suppose, to development, quote unquote. Um, jumping forward, I can see that we're starting to run out of time, so I, w- I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, what would you say your findings can teach us about Kenya today? Citizenship in Kenya today? Development in Kenya today? perhaps relationships between development and foreign policy today, and I'm thinking about like the US and Kenya on Mm -hmm. Al-Shabaab or perhaps Kenya and China on roads and hospitals and some of the things you mentioned just a few minutes ago. Yeah,
0: I mean I think... One thing it teaches us is that, um, there are these enduring consequences to development programs. So in the conclusion, I, I traced out some of the development programs that I studied from the 1960s and 1970s and, and what the, you know, some of them still remain in place. So the way they look is very different. Um, but they've had these long-standing repercussions, for especially material inequality, but also for political culture in Kenya, and that, you know, lots of scholars have made this argument, but development tends to have unintended consequences, and and it doesn't tend to produce the outcomes that are at least trumpeted in development plans. Um, So the big thing, I guess, is that we we have to kind of look more broadly, think about the context. Think about what people actually want and think about, you know, what are the structural problems that exist here rather than trying to just put band-aids over um, kind of specific technical issues. Um,
1: yeah. Is that um, in part why you chose such a stunning um, piece of cover art? So for if you have a chance, go look at um, Kara's cover. It's a stamp. And it's a uh, Rwandan, or, I'm sorry, Kenyan man putting the flag, if I remember correctly. Can you talk mm-hmm. to us? So There seems to be something about the promise and future and, you know, current events in the, in the, in your cover choice.
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I found that stamp on eBay. I'd seen, I'd oh, wow. seen the image of it online before and, um, I was looking for, or trying to figure out what I could use for cover art, um. I felt like there's so much um, complexity and kind of irreconcilable strands of thought within the book that I didn't want the image to kind of portray something that wasn't wholly true or wasn't representative of the book as a whole. Um, So, yeah, I think one of the things that a lot of scholars of decolonization have written about is is that independence wrought both. You know, promise and hope, but also a great deal of anxiety. Um, and, and this represents obviously the, the more hopeful side of things. Um, but I just thought it was a really striking image and it's, at least in the sixties and seventies, it's rare to come across imagery that is in color. And I liked that it, it used obviously Kenya's national colors and, um, yeah, just so clearly symbolized independence.
1: It's a great symbol for the two time periods you're trying to bridge as well. I think as I just I mentioned it because I think um, we forget as authors that we need to push for the cover that we want. <laughs> as we begin to close, I just have um, a couple more questions. Um, number one, would you consider yourself a decolonial scholar when this decolonial moment everyone's trying to figure out what that means? You know, you're mm-hmm. an American who works in Kenya. Would you put yourself in that? um framework, that approach, that ethic, I suppose? I hope so. You know, I mean I think
0: <clears throat> we're in a moment <clears throat> excuse me, where yeah. we're all kind of reconsidering or hopefully we're all reconsidering um the politics of the types of research that we do and also the power dynamics that exist and, and certainly also the exclusion of a lot of scholars from the continent. Um from being able to publish in American presses or from going to graduate school at American institutions or European institutions or from the kind of lack of funding of higher educational institutions within, within the continent as well. And I think we have to think not only about the power dynamics within academia, but also between ourselves and um, the people that we work with in um, the communities that where we conduct research. So I try to approach um, methodologically as a, a decolonial scholar, um, but I think it's something that I'm continually kind of reconsidering and um Thinking more deeply about in terms of of what that actually means and how I
1: can um mentor <laughs> better
0: better yeah. do that yeah um it's, i think yeah it's it's supposed to be difficult, but if if it's not difficult, we're not working hard enough on it
1: yeah I like that um framing i mm-hmm. um another question so for listeners who want to learn more about Kenya development in Kenya and the relationship between development and citizenship belonging as you've written about, are there a handful of books that, you know, resources that you would recommend?
0: Sure. Um, I I love Daniel Branch's book on post-colonial Kenya. It's not specifically on development, but it's on basically post-colonial politics. It's called Kenya Between Hope and Despair. Um, I think that's an excellent um perspective on postcolonial politics in Kenya, written by a historian. Um Tenda Mutungi's um work is also someone who I I always read and, and think about. And again, it's not totally on development, but it's thinking about Kenyan politics. And um her first book was called Worries of the Heart, and she just came out with a new book called Matatu, um, which basically uses public transit as a way of thinking about Nairobi's history. Um, a lot of the, I would say, kind of development histories that I, I like most are, are not necessarily from Kenyanists, but I'll recommend them anyways. I, I really like Priyalal's book, African Socialism in Postcolonial Tanzania. Um, I think it does, similar to my book, it does a really nice job of, of looking at the different scales of, um, post-colonial politics in Tanzania and particularly Ujama. Um And then Alden Young has a great book on um, development in Sudan called Transforming Sudan.
1: Oh wow, you yeah, have um, heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, For what it's worth, I used Daniel. I wrote a book um, with the, in the same series as Daniel Branch and I also loved his book. I used it as a model when I was trying to figure out how to mm-hmm. write my book. I wrote in the same series. Um, on Rwanda last, but not least. Karen, I'm so grateful for your time and your insights and your intellect. Can you tell us, give us a little hope for the future? What are you working on now?
0: That's a big question, right? My (laughs) book came out in November. Um, Right now, I'm finishing up a few articles that I've been working on for a long time or have kind of been on the back burner while I was finishing up my book. And then the hope is to start on a new book project. but. I was supposed to go to Kenya this summer, but obviously that is not happening. So some of that's a little bit on hold because it's hard to conduct research right now. But um one of the projects that I have in mind is on the politics of Kenyan professional running. Oh, wow. Um, so the region that I study is where most of Kenya's or the region that I focused on in the book is where most of Kenya's professional runners.
1: Came oh, from. in, in um, e
0: Yeah. Yeah, so Wasangishu and, um, Transenzoa are, are where a lot of the, basically the Western Highlands, um, is where a lot of. Kenya's runners come from. Um, so I became interested in that when I was conducting oral histories because you can't really miss it. You're constantly driving by signs or past schools or the Eldorette Airport, for example, has like signs that say like Eldorette Home of Champions, things like that. It's, it's just, it is very pervasive when you're there. So it's something that I thought a lot about. And then the other idea is to kind of continue more in the vein of development history in a slightly later period, thinking about um the rise of neoliberalism and structural adjustment in
1: Kenya you could perhaps circle back to your time in Lesotho and pick up where James Ferguson left off yeah. that was a, yeah. a that was a book that his book um anti politics machine inspired me for my phd it's mm. um, incredible how books come with you and how your work circles back Um, to different topics because you picked them up here and there just through observation with other people. Kara, I want to thank you. It's been great chatting with you. Um, Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for your time.